We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. As we uh, go to our scripture reading, I invite you to turn to Ezekiel, please, chapter 40, a rather lengthy chapter, and it begins a segment of the text, nine chapters, that talks about a future temple, future system of sacrifices, uh, the future presence of the Lord in his kingdom. This has been hotly criticized by covenant theologians and others who believe that any uh, kind of um, going back to a sacrificial system is a retrograde that is impossible, but uh, the text seems to indicate very clearly that we have here a temple that has never been seen before, and uh, Ezekiel is shown the dimensions of it in great detail, and some of you might wonder, uh, why isn't that too much detail? And I agree that it is a lot, but I think the Lord does that in service of trying to undercut the point that people make that this is merely symbolic. If it were merely symbolic, we would not need these kinds of dimensions to be given. And you might say, well, what's interesting about all of this information? Well, let me ask you this. If you are going to build yourself a house, do you consider about the dimensions of that house, how the front door looks? how the windows appear, how the shutters are on the outside, what the porch looks like, how the kitchen is laid out, and all that, is there enough space? How much space in the bedrooms? Is there a den? Is there an upstairs? Is there a downstairs? Is there a walkout basement? Do you consider, concern yourself with all of that? Of course, to some extent or another, depending on how heavily you are involved in the actual construction of the home. But even if you're just a buyer who's able to write a check to the builder and, and build it, you're still going to want to customize the home and have it the way that you want it to be. And so I don't think it's unreasonable for God to spend a little time telling us about the plan of his millennial temple and how it's going to look. So let's read, starting in Ezekiel 40 and verse 1. In the 25th year of our captivity, at the beginning of the year on the 10th day of the month in the 14th year, after the city was captured, on the very same day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he took me there. There is Jerusalem not heaven, Jerusalem. In the visions of God, he took me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. On it toward the south was something like the structure of a city. He took me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. He had a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he stood in the gateway. Now this is, as far as we can tell at the moment, is an angel. The appearance of the, this one gives that away. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and fix your mind on everything I show you, for you were brought here so that I might show them to you. Declare to the house of Israel everything you see. Now, there was a wall all around the outside of the temple. In the man's hand was a measuring rod, six cubits long, each being a cubit and a hand breadth. And he measured the wall and the wall structure, one rod, 
than the height one rod. Now just pause for a moment there just to orient yourself. This rod is six cubits, and it specifies the cubit. Normally you think of the cubit as the distance maybe from the elbow to the end of the finger, 18 inches, roughly speaking, plus a hand breadth in this case. This is the royal cubit, either 21 or 22 inches long. And so if you multiply that out, you come up with something like uh, 10 and a half to 11 feet in length. This rod that this man is holding is 11 feet. So that gives you an idea of the height of the wall and the thicknesses, all the stuff that he's measuring. And he also has this flax, a line of flax, which appears to be like a measuring line that's for longer stuff for him to measure. Verse uh, 6. Then he went to the gateway, which faced east, and he went up its stairs and measured the threshold of the gateway, which was one rod wide, and the other threshold was one rod wide. Each gate chamber was one rod long and one rod wide. Between the gate chamber was a space of five cubits, and the threshold of the gateway by the vestibule of the inside gate was one rod. And he also measured the vestibule of the inside gate one rod. Now you'll find online if you look, there's going to be some now, I think now, three-dimensional images that you can kind of move through and look at what this might look like in at least rough dimensions. Then he measured the vestibule of the gateway, eight cubits, and the gate posts, two cubits. The vestibule of the gate was on the inside. And in the eastern gateway, there were three gate chambers on one side and three on the other. The three were all the same size. Also, the gate posts were of the same size on this side and that side. He measured, so very symmetrical, you see that. He measured the width of the entrance to the gateway, 10 cubits, and the length of the gate, 13 cubits. There was a space in front of the gate chambers, one cubit on this side and one on that. The gate chambers were six cubits on this side and six cubits on that. Again, very symmetrical. Uh, Then he measured the gateway from the roof of one gate chamber to the roof of the other. The width was 25 cubits as door faces door. He measured the gate post, 60 cubits high. Wow, that's tall. And the court all around, the gateway extended to the gate post. From the front of the entrance gate to the front of the vestibule of the inner gate was 50 cubits. There were beveled window frames in the gate chambers and in their intervening archways on the inside of the gateway all around. And likewise, in the vestibules, there were windows all around on the inside. And on each gate post were palm trees. Then he brought me into the outer court, and there were chambers and a pavement made all around the court. Thirty chambers faced the pavement. The pavement was by the side of the gateways corresponding to the length of the gateways. This was the lower pavement. Then he measured the width from the front of the lower gateway to the front of the inner court exterior, 100 cubits toward the east and the north. Then we come to another gateway. On the outer court was also a gateway facing north, and he measured its length and its width, its gate chambers, three on this side and three on that side. Its gate posts and its archways had the same measurements as the first gate. Its length was 50 cubits and its width 25 cubits. Its windows and those of its archways and also its palm trees had the same measurements as the gateway facing east. It was ascended by seven steps, and its archway was in front of it. And the gate of the inner court was opposite the northern gateway, just as the eastern gateway. And he measured from gateway to gateway 100 cubits. And then the southern. After that, he brought me toward the south, and there a gateway was facing south. And he measured its gate posts and archways according to the same measurements. There were windows in it, 
And in its archways, all around like those windows, its length was 50 cubits and its width 25. Seven steps led up to it, and its archway was in front of them. And it had palm trees on its gate posts, one on this side and other on that side. Uh, and there was also a gateway in the inner court facing south. And he measured from gateway to gateway toward the south 100 cubits. Let's uh, look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we begin our message this morning, I pray that you would help us to be receptive to what is said here today and the thoughts and advice that will be shared. We ask, Lord, that you would bless and keep. We thank you that uh, brother is okay and uh, safely in his seat there. And we pray, Lord, that each and every one will give great attention to the things of God this morning. In Christ's name, amen. We've often done expositional messages here, which you know is my wheelhouse and what I prefer to do, but in between series I often take one or several weeks to touch on some other matters, and I'd like to do that with you this morning again as we finished Philippians a few weeks ago, and I'm going to give you today some pastoral advice, and I just uh, put in the title of the message in which your pastor gives you some frank counsel. Um, if I could be as open and transparent as I wanted to be and not worry about offending you at all, or you wouldn't be offended at all, then I might say some things like I'm about to say. Okay? Now, I know you didn't ask for my advice, but I'm giving it to you anyway. <laughs> Number one, this is kind of basic discipleship stuff, really, but I sense that there's a bit of a need for us to back up and review it and think about it. Number one, I want to advise you to be reading your Bible. Now, six months ago, we said this and encourage you to take a Bible reading schedule from the back, and I, I hope that that has been your portion uh, for uh, transparency and accountability. Uh, I have been reading through the Bible, mostly the English Standard Version this year, and uh, listening to it as well, listening and reading along at the same time in the New Testament. And then I took up some work in the Old Testament in the Psalms and Proverbs. And uh, that's, that's where, as far as I've gotten uh, this year. So all the New Testament and, and, and the Psalms and the Proverbs. But I will continue on, and I trust that you will as well. You need to read all of the Bible. You need to read the New Testament. One of the things I find is sometimes people get kind of bogged down in the Old Testament I always advise people, be reading the New Testament all the time. Don't stay away from it for long. Uh, historical narrative is good. Wisdom literature is great. But you cannot subsist on just that kind of material. You need New Testament teaching uh, for your soul. And so don't leave it behind for months on end as you read the Old Testament. That's why a kind of alternating program is good or some New Testament, some Old Testament every day is good. I want to encourage you to do that. Read it daily, as many days as possible. A pattern of laxity regarding the word will tend to creep up on you just as a lack of diligence in anything that the flesh does not like. Diet, exercise, daily reading on some academic subject, studying for some test that you have that you want to procrastinate as long as possible. And Well, you don't really want to, but you do. And you find out that the, there's a price for that to be paid later. Sometimes people say, well, I don't, read every, I don't understand everything that I read. That's okay. I don't understand everything that I read. You know? Over the course of time, 
by virtue of repetition, God willing, you will understand more and more. I did not get to my level of understanding the Bible yesterday, I mean, starting yesterday and coming to it today. I started uh, earnestly, I was reading the Bible since I was probably an early teenager every day, but I started reading the Bible earnestly and in more depth probably in the mid-1990s. And uh, I took up a program in which I read the New Testament through 30 times in two and a half years. And it's not impossible. You can do it too. Some of you that are retired can easily do it. I was studying for a, a doctoral degree at the university during those days and still could do that. But um, you can do that. You can read it. And so over the course of time, by repetition, that's the only way really that I know to learn. There's some guys that are a whiz, gals. You know, they just look at something and boom, they have it. That's not my, I don't know, ability, I guess you would say, or approach. Uh, it takes work. It does. But you will understand more and more. You know, in other words, you don't have to study every day, but you should think as you read. Don't just let the words go in and out. You know what I mean? When you read, think about what you're reading. Try to understand it. One of the things I find is when I'm listening to the Bible narrated, my, if I'm not looking at it, my brain can go off into other places. But if I'm looking at it and following along, I'm getting it in the ear, I'm getting it in the eyes, I'm thinking about it, that does help to cement what uh, I'm reading and studying and, and, and rather thinking about. Uh, if you can do more by listening on your commute or your walk, do that. Do that. Now, it's hard to find a, a Bible verse that commands you to read Scripture every day because almost no one at the time the Bible was written had a Bible, right? They didn't. No print copies of the whole thing together existed for a long time, long periods of time. But that's not a problem for us today. But let me give you two lines of argument to start with that will uh, help you to understand why we can draw this teaching from the Scripture, why I can say as your pastor you need to read your Bible. First of all, the instruction that God gave to the Israelite kings. And then secondly, the, other, the, the second is the believer's love for God's word. This is not a command like an onerous um, you know, thing that you have, you know, have to take out the garbage. You have to mow the grass. You have to sweep the garage. You know, that kind of mundane stuff that you just have to do. This is something that you love to do. Do you? Back in Deuteronomy, and the way you can remember this is easy, it's Deuteronomy 17, 18, 19, and 20. Got it? If you're a number person, you like those sequential numbers. It says this, Also it shall be when he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and get this, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left. So not only is he to read it every day, he was to do what? write out a copy of it, first of all, read it, and then make sure that his heart was humble and that he would not turn to the right or to the left off of those commands. And so 
uh, there is certainly a, a responsibility of a leader. Now, do you want to, you know, if you want to be, if you want to be a king someday, better start acting like one now. You get the point? If you want to, if you want to be in a responsible position, if you want to stand before kings, like the proverb says, then you better be diligent now about doing that. And you might say, well, I'm not a king. I'm not a president. I'm not, you know what? It would be a really good for our president to have to follow this. Read the Bible every day and then follow it. I wonder how much the Bible is read in the current White House or in past White Houses for that matter. Oy, we're in a real bad state, my friends. But if the king is good enough for the king of Israel, it's good enough for you. I'll make another statement about that in a moment. Psalm 1, 2 and 3 says, His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. In other words, he loves the law of God. Psalm 119, My hands also I will lift up to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Anyway, the man who meditates on the word day and night will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Is your life dried out? Are your leaves withered and wilting? Or are they vibrant and full of life? Your leaf would not wither, and whatever you do will prosper if you make the law of the Lord your delight. John 14, 23 says, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. So it's a matter of love. It's not a matter of grudging obligation. a matter of love for God. If you do not have the word of God for a time, imagine... Once you slurp it up, once you got back access to it. But by reason of prevalence, we take God's word for granted. We have Bibles upon Bibles upon Bibles, and then we have all that many and more on our telephones, on our cell phones, on our smartphones, and tablets, and the computer, and all the rest, and we take it for granted. As for the kings, God has made us like them, a kingdom of priests, or, if you will, kings and priests to our God. That is your position before God. Additionally, the priests themselves were expected to know God's word. As we make an argument for your daily reading of the Bible, Malachi 2.7 says, For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and the people should seek the law from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Look, if the pastor is not giving you the word of God, if the priest is not giving you the word of God, if the king is not living in accordance with the word of God, what do you have? A mess. You need another pastor, priest, or, or king. Uh, of course, we're not saying that we're Levitical or Catholic priests, but you are a priest unto God, are you not? 1 Peter 2.5, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. How are you going to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God if you don't know the material that underlies those sacrifices, if you don't know the teaching that God has given? Or are you going to just waltz into the presence of God and offer him stuff like, like uh, Nadab and Abihu, strange fire, unauthorized offerings to God? You're going to go before him and treat him like he's, not, he's taught you not to treat him. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's our responsibility. That's not just my responsibility. 
you're sitting there saying, why is pastor talking to me about all this? Because that's you. You are the priests of God. You are the intermediaries, at least for yourselves, if you will, to God through Christ, of course. We understand that. But you have direct access to him. Also, we have the command to publicly read the scriptures. 1 Timothy 4.13, Till I come, he said to Timothy, give attention to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. I think he's talking about in the church, because earlier on he talked about that in the household of faith. We'll look at that again in a moment. So reading your Bible, basic stuff. Don't tell me you're not a reader. Don't tell me you don't have time. How much time do you have, brother? You've got all the time there is. There's 24 hours in a day and seven days in a week and 3,600 seconds in every hour, and no more is going to be made for you. And at some point, the clock is going to stop, and then you'll have no more because you will be in heaven if you're a believer, I trust. Secondly, focus on making disciples. Okay? Again, I'm giving you frank advice. I know it's unsolicited, but tough. We need this. We need this. We have got to make disciples, friends. If this church has the same people in it next year that it does this year, then I would say that that, that, that part's good. But if it's only those people and no more, then we have in some sense failed. Or the next year, or the next year, or 10 years. What have we done for God? God has put us here to make disciples, not to sit, soak, and sour, as some have said. So that's why I prayed earlier. I pray that you will select a person to work on. Pray for them often. Look for and make opportunities for the gospel. You know, you can't just look for opportunities. You have to make opportunities. If the door is closed, check if it's locked. And if it's unlocked, open it. You know what I'm saying metaphorically? You can't just sit there and say, oh, I hope, I hope they, start, they come to me and say, uh, what must I do to be saved? I wish that would happen. People aren't going to do that. You have to share with them your testimony. Share with them God's love for them. Ephesians 4.12 says that the uh, pastors and evangelists and apostles and prophets were placed by the God in the church to build the church up to do its work. You remember that passage? Let's turn there, Ephesians chapter 4. It says in 4.11, He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. I think a good way to look at it would be like the pastor's like the coach. He's not getting out on the gridiron, but he's giving you all the coaching and equipment you need to get out on the gridiron and play the game for the edifying of the body of Christ. In other words, he equips you, you go play the game. The old idea was the pastor does the equipping and he does the work and he does the edifying. And everybody else just sit down and be quiet. That's not, yeah, spectators. I didn't say that you were up in the stands. You're, you're on the sideline. You're out on the field. You're being prepared for the ministry. You do the work of the ministry. Of course, I do the work of the ministry too, but 
the emphasis here is I'm preparing you to do the work of the ministry. How? By telling you to read your Bible. By telling you to focus on making disciples. I, have, of course, am supposed to do the work of an evangelist, 2 Timothy 4.5, but that does not excuse everyone else from the task. We're to pray that the Lord will raise up workers for his harvest field. Remember that? And we act as if we're praying and God's going to raise up somebody from somewhere else. He's already raised up people. I'm looking at them. Right? God, you know, that prayer has been offered over the years and God has answered it. He may not have answered it with as many people as we'd like, but he's answered it with you. You are the answer to the Lord's prayer in Matthew 9, 36 to 38. Did you know that? You are the workers that he has raised up. Very infrequently are you going to find somebody that's out there in the world that gets saved and all of a sudden becomes a missionary. No, they get saved by the ministry of somebody like you and they're brought into the church and they're in the church for a few years and they grow in their knowledge of the word and the grace and knowledge of Christ and their obedience to the word and God calls them to ministry and they're launched out from the church. This is the place from which ministers come, the churches of God, Matthew 9. He's still raising up workers for his harvest field. You know, around here, for, for me, spring can be a difficult season because the trees are putting out all of their pollen. We have pollen like snow in our, I call it pollen, but it's tree seeds which have been pollinated probably before. But God is, has arranged to sow seeds from those trees bountifully with no effort on, on the human part. Just they blow off the trees and the wind blows them around and they go and and he will reap bountifully even if only a small percentage of those seeds germinate and flourish. I mean, think of the millions of seeds that are out there right now floating around and landing on the grass and on the road and uh, you know, on the highways and, and the places where they might be able to, to germinate. Not all of them will. Some of them will be eaten by the birds and so on because they're also for our food. But if we do not plant the gospel, guess how much gospel fruit we're going to get? You all are gospel farmers. To succeed as a church, to be a success in God's sight, and frankly to save as many souls from hell as we can, we must plant the seed. There is no other way around it. If you haven't led a soul to Christ, you need to think about how, I can, how God, I can do that. God, help me to do that. You all need to be leading people to Christ. All of us do. That's my frank advice for us as a church. Otherwise, the church dies. The next generation doesn't necessarily just automatically carry it on. I pray my boys will do that, your children will do that, but how do we know? We have to be multiplying the seed sown so that we can have a bountiful, bountiful harvest. Planting seed does not mean merely being nice and helpful or doing good deeds or being a friend. That may open the door of opportunity, but it is not the preaching of the gospel. You have to get around sometime to telling your specific someone, that person that God has put in your mind right now, the name of that person, to, uh, to tell what God has done for you. Tell how God did it. Tell about Christ. And that God calls them to follow Christ as well. We must all uphold God's truth to a dark world so that they can see it. That's the second. So you're reading your Bible 
You're focusing on making disciples. And if you're not a disciple, you need to become a disciple. I'll just say that to cover my bases here this morning. Thirdly, I mentioned this to the men yesterday, and I thought I'd bring it today again. Get an accountability partner. We all have blind spots. We all have tendencies towards sin. We need more eyes on our situation than we offer them. Proverbs 11 and 24 talk about there is safety in many counselors. Help you avoid your blind spots. If you're married, of course, your spouse is your first accountability partner. If you're a minor child or an adult child without a spouse, your Christian parents are perfect for this role. But in addition, if you're a man, find another Christian brother. If a woman, find a Christian sister. Invite them to tell you if they see some fault, some pattern, tendency, sin in your life. Talk regularly. Pray with them. Go over Scripture. Invite them to to ask you any question about how your walk with the Lord is going. Any question at all. Because you need that. James chapter 5 and verse number 16 uh, gives what I think is at least some justification for what I've just said here. In James 5.16 it says, Confess your trespasses one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Many years ago I remember in our men's prayer meetings and in my own life, praying, God, whatever it takes, that I would be a person that is what you want me to be. Do what it takes. You go, well, I'd never pray that. That's too dangerous. Well, maybe it's dangerous because you know just how much it would take for God to make you the kind of person that he wants you to be. Are you willing to pray that prayer? Are you willing to say whatever? You know, are you willing to be transparent with someone else and say, I'm struggling with this sin, would you help me? Would you pray for me? When you need prayer to help you in your walk with the Lord, your marriage, your children, these accountability people will be super important to you. And you have pastoral help is available as well. Um, you know, I, I put it in the notes. Uh, I said this, to put it crassly, you do pay for it when you make an offering for the church. That's... You know, why would you go pay for a secular counselor? You already pay for one when you, when you put offerings in the church, you know? It, it's just, I, like I say, it is putting it crassly, but um, it's so true. We want to go get our, our problems solved by somebody that doesn't know the wisdom of God. You go before unbelievers, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Don't you have anybody in the church that can help you? An older brother, an older sister, a pastor, a deacon, somebody? Obviously, there's somebody. And, and they might just say, you know, listen, let me save you a lot of secular counseling money. You know, repent. They, oh, wow. You know, I should have repented of this sin a long time ago. It would have solved my problems. Maybe. Yeah. So you've got an accountability partner. You're reading the Bible. You're focusing on making disciples. Related to the last point, number four, you're fighting and confessing sin in your life. You're making no provision for the flesh. Galatians 5.17 tells us that the flesh and the spirit are at war with one another. If you don't believe that, then you must be dead or asleep or something. You are, there's something wrong if you don't get this idea 
If you're oblivious to it, then you're losing the battle already. You need to be engaged in the battle, saying no to yourself regularly in your mind. I don't, I don't know how else to say that. I'm just telling you. If you're not saying no to yourself, no to the flesh, telling yourself to be obedient to God, then you've got a problem. And when you fail, you know 1 John 1, 9, you better, and you better make good practice of it because that's one mark of a true believer in Christ that you confess your sin. You know, if you just say, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm good, I'm a good person. I'm not doing anything wrong. It's, that's not my fault. How, how, how many times does God have to get your attention before you'll realize you're a sinner and you need to confess your sin? Romans uh, 13, 14, I believe it is, tells us uh, something that I had mentioned or put in the heading already of this section. It says, 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. The way I put that is something like this. Don't give your sin nature the kind of maneuvering room that it wants. Box it in. You must do this with faith in Christ. And don't pretend that you know mere mystical faith will solve the problem, though. Do something to box out your sin nature. I use a basketball term. Are you all familiar with the term boxing out from basketball? Not letting the guy, the opponent, get under the basket because you want the rebound? So you're pushing him away. You're trying to box, make a box that he can't get into. Um, that's the idea for your flesh. Do something. Find, uh, fill your time with good things, with serving others instead of self. Take care about the kind of entertainment that you watch or hear and the amount of it. Get away from the phone. This is something that I just want to tell people, and I don't care if I offend you. A lot of you spend far too much time on your phones, tablets, and computers. And, and it's become, for some, it's become the new way of going from house to house bearing tales. You don't have to do that now, actually going house to house. You just go on Facebook, and you put it there, and you look at this one, and you forward it to them and say, see this, and look at that, and all that. You are spending far too much time doing that virtual meta stuff than doing real life. You know what I'm saying by that? Get off of that stuff. Of course, use it for holy purposes. But don't waste your life doing that stuff. You know, if, if, if God forbid all the social media were to disappear, what would we do? We'd have to live like we used to live about 20 years ago. Or 2,000 years ago. You know, what a shock that would be. Do not let it become your method of time wasting or gossip. People, frankly, just waste too much time. You need to live. You need to do your work. You need to do your housework. You need to do your homework. All of that stuff, you know. Another area of this fighting and sin and confessing it is, is pride. Pride is insidious. How, how you think of others and, and that you think you know more than others can mask a lot of sin in your life to your mind. You, you deceive yourself by your pride. Your pride makes excuses for your own poor behavior to the point that you do not see it as poor behavior. Instead, be clothed with humility. One of the things that happens with pride is you get some people exhibit the hero complex. You think very highly of yourself that you're doing a really good work 
you're helping a missionary after all, or, uh, you know, after all, I mean, get, <laughs> helping, helping the missionary gets you bonus points with God, or doing something for someone else that gains you recognition from others, and it's not the help that you're giving, nor the recognition from God that you want, but it's the recognition of others that you want. You know, the Lord, the Lord told about the Pharisees who love to stand in the street corners praying out loud for people to hear them and giving their alms publicly, really clanging it into the offering plate so you know just how much they gave. How about helping others when there's no recognition for it? How about inviting the people who are poor to your feast so that they cannot repay you back, the Lord said. Here's another one as we fight sin. This one is universal especially for our young people, young people. I'm looking at three of them here and several around, and we know them in the church. You have to learn to submit yourselves to your elders. I don't care if you're 18. Turning 18 doesn't magically make you into something special, or 13, or 14, or 15. Subjugate the anger the, the sin nature that wants to lash out, that wants to defend yourself, that wants to call names to your parents. 1 Peter 5.5, 5, submit yourselves to your elders. Learn how to live at peace with your parents, even if they are imperfect and if their rules of the house are a little restrictive. So what? Thank God for the house, right? This is one of the most important life lessons you can learn. I I told the guys yesterday as we were talking about humility and service and all of that, I, I consciously learned that lesson as a late teenager, early 20s with my family relationships and work earlier than that and some other areas. And that has served me very well because you have to learn not to be like thinking of yourself like up here. We're down here, right? Think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. That's not what the scriptures tell us. They tell us to think lower than we are. Another one for young people, but all of us as well. Learn to do things without complaining. Learn to do things without complaining. So important. Philippians 2.14. Do all things without murmuring or complaining and grumbling or disputing. Another one we talked about briefly yesterday. Learn that divine, or sorry, learn that interruptions are divine appointments. Interruptions are divine appointments. I'm, you know, you're sitting at your desk trying to get your work done, or you're in the middle of something, and young person X comes up to you and says, hey, dad, or mom, or whatever. No, I'm busy. Don't bother me. How do you know that you just didn't blow an opportunity to talk to them about something very important? How do you know that God was not trying to test your patience and you just failed? Oops. Yep, confess that one. So interruptions are divine appointments for one thing or another. And then my last advice under fighting sin is just simply this. Don't be a jerk. Don't be obnoxious. That's all. You never thought somebody would say that in a a church service, did you? Don't be a jerk. You know, don't be obnoxious. It's so bad. We ought to be of gentle, most reasonable, kind people that there are. And I know our flesh gets in the way and we mess that thing up. Absolutely. That's where you're saying no to yourself. Be patient, self. You know, 
Remember when you went to your parents and they didn't listen to you, but you had something to tell them? Yeah. Fifth, attend church. We're making disciples, we're reading our Bibles, we're fighting sin, we're getting an accountability partner, we're attending church, especially prayer meeting. I know our sister over here is probably over there saying, Amen, go pastor, you preach it. Don't make excuses. If you're in a good church, there's very little that you could be doing at home or elsewhere that's truly more important than gathering with God's people. You're you can t- tell me till you're blue in the face. All my little projects and all my little things and pr- preparing for Monday morning and I got to get to bed at a certain time and all that is more important than going to be with God's people. And what I'm going to do there is I'm going to sit there and I'm going to I'm going to harden my heart. <laughs> and I'm going to say I don't believe it. I mean, if you're working in the emergency room and people are dying from gunshots and you've got to be there to say, okay, I understand you've been scheduled for work, but you've got some project to do. Look, clean your bedroom after church, you know, not during. Worshiping God is very important. Praying to God is very important. What you do now sets patterns, too, for your kids. Been said, and I think it's true, it's very important unlikely, not impossible, but unlikely that your children will be more faithful in church attendance than you were. Isn't that true? I got to be careful, huh? Yeah, treading on thin ice, aren't I? Yeah, the patterns that you set now are the patterns that may be set. And guess what? The flesh never tries to do more than. It always tries to do the minimum of the things that it doesn't want to do. God commands us to attend together, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, if that's not good enough. Uh, what about corporate prayer? There's no shortage of instruction on prayer in general. For example, Luke 18, men ought always to pray and not to faint. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. But what about corporate prayer? Well, you say it doesn't t- tell us a corporate prayer. Well, wait a minute. 1 Timothy 2, 1 says that prayers should be made for all men, for kings and all in authority, for a quiet life and about the salvation of those people. And then you say to me, yeah, but pastor, it doesn't say to pray corporately together. Oh, but read 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Paul says, I'm writing to you so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church. One of those things is that you pray for all your leaders and all the people. So you're doing it together as a church. And by the way, are you reading your Bible and praying with your family on a regular basis? One way you can do that is break away from what you're doing at home and go to church and do those things. You know, it's very difficult. Some, sometimes I'm at home and I'm in my office and I've got all this stuff, books and piles of messes and computers and all this stuff around me, and I get so distracted sometimes. And the telephone, like, I, okay, i got to leave and i got to go to my office. And then... The distractions start over there. Okay, so I'm going to move over to this one, and I'm going to go over here. I just took up residence for a couple days because they were doing the floors in in the office off the library here because I couldn't walk on the floors to get in and out of my office. And uh, it was kind of nice because there was less stuff in there to be a distraction. But you have distractions at home, and sometimes you just have to say, I'm going to get away. Even though gas is $5 a gallon, I'm going to go to the church and I'm going to get away from all that stuff so I can focus on, on reading the word and prayer and, and uh, worshiping God. 
I've emphasized prayer meeting in my heading, and you might say, well, are you saying I should attend Wednesday night but not Sunday morning? I didn't say that. But you know what? If you attend Wednesday night, I know you'll attend Sunday morning because you'll want to. That's the thing. When I used, as a young person, look at church as something I have to do, oh, man. But when it became something I wanted to do, and I wanted to go Sunday night and find out what are they saying there, what's the Bible have, what are they, you know, and go and pray. I didn't know how to pray when I was a teenager. I never prayed out loud in my life. I told you that before, haven't I? We prayed always quiet prayers at our table, and our parents didn't model, you know, a loud prayer. What was I to do? But I learned. I learned how to pray. But I wanted to. Why is that? Because God put something in my heart. I know why now, because he was preparing me to be in this kind of ministry. But 30 years ago or so, I didn't know that. But no, if you desire to pray with the church, then you'll not have to be cajoled into coming to other services because you'll want to do so. Fact of the matter is, Here I am again giving you this unsolicited advice, but don't be offended. You do what you want to do. I don't mean go ahead and do what you want to do. I'm saying the things that you select to do, you select to do them because you desire to do them. You desire to not go to church because you desire something else more. Period. I defy you to give me an alternative explanation. The Bible also has dozens of one another commands. You cannot do all of them in a church meeting, but you certainly can't do all of them if you stay home. If you don't acquaint yourself with people or know those in the assembly or able to serve them together. I've probably left out a few dozen thoughts here. (laughs) Let me know if you think advice on other topics would be helpful. But I'm confident that if you focus on these basics, reading your Bible, making disciples, keeping yourself accountable, Engaging in the battle of sin and being faithful in church attendance, you will do well. You will do well, and I trust you will. I uh, have a book called uh, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by Donald Whitney. I think it would be helpful for you if you want to read up more on these things. I had been reading some of that some weeks, months ago, actually, and I constructed this message, and then I looked at the message, and I looked at the table of contents in the book, and I said, well, I've covered things, you know, okay, pretty well at the basic level. He goes into much more depth there, but that's a resource for you to look at if you want to spend some more time on on these matters. I don't mean this message to be insulting at all. I don't mean it to be too basic, but I find for myself, sometimes I get into, you know, kind of down the path here and down the path there and realize, wait a minute, I got to pull back and I got to go back to the fundamentals. Um, You know, have you ever seen a baseball game where the guys on the field are just making errors, and you're like, man, they just got away from the basics. They got to go back to spring training. I mean, basic fielding, basic hitting, basic base running, and, and, and they blew it. Game's full of errors. Well, what about us? You know, we, I, I go to church. Yeah, but are you making disciples, or are you going to church? Going to church doesn't cut it. Making disciples, reading your Bible, being in the Word and prayer and with, you know, doing the one another commands. You can go to church all you want until you're blue in the face. It's not going to please God. Look at what he said in the Old Testament. 
These people make sacrifices all the time. They honor me with their, but their hearts are far from me. Where is your heart? And these things won't be onerous commands. They'll be just like, yeah, that's spring training stuff. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us. Help us to take these words of advisement, advice from the Bible and, and take it really under our wing, into our minds, and help us to correct an area or two today that might have been exposed by what was said here. Thank you for your loving kindness. May your hand guide us and bless each one, young people and old alike. And uh, Lord, may this church be a successful church in your eyes, not in the world's necessarily, but in yours. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.